0: Our text this morning is Genesis 14, and we're looking at the subject, the aftermath of a just war. If you look at your bulletin outline, we're going to talk a little bit about Abram the warrior. Now, maybe you, you think it's a bit odd to put those two words together. Abram the warrior. What right, if any, did Abram have to go aga- to war against the Federation? of four kings that came against the cities of the Jordan plain and sacked them and sold away their goods and their people. Yes, we recall that an escaped soldier in the conflict reported to Abram, verse 13, that his nephew Lot had been one taken captive along with all the other inhabitants of those cities. Okay, so we could see that Abram had a vested interest in this conflict. It was his nephew. But it might be argued, hey, uh, Lot is only one man, or let's, let's give him the benefit, one family involved in this struggle. Does that warrant endangering 318 plus men to go to his rescue? Or to ask the question a different way, what, apart from him being a relative of Abram, is so compelling as to jeopardize the lives of so many others to secure his freedom? I might ask this question. Is this a numbers game? Mm, One family, 318 men plus those allied with Abram. One to three. Uh, is this a numbers game? Is this how we determine whether the cause is just or frivolous? This is often the case with nations, and ours is no exception. Even as I speak, just this past week, 90 Syrian Christians were kidnapped by ISIS in northern Syria. I was working on this sermon on Thursday when I wrote that number down. This was Thursday of this past week. Ninety Syrian Christians arrested by ISIS ISIS, with their fate unknown, but you know from ISIS that their fate is not good. Okay, by Friday morning, just the very next day, the number had gone from ninety to over two hundred Christians kidnapped in Syria. Last week, and we saw it on the video, twenty-one others were decapitated on video with the caption by ISIS underneath it, warning, quote, Message signed in blood, coming soon to the nation of the cross. Who's the nation of the cross? As you and me, and any of the Christian nations. Yet as those very Christians were about to be slaughtered, Shobat.com, a reporting agency, a news reporting agency, says... As the blade came to their neck, they all cried in unison, Ya Rabbi Yasu, O my Lord Jesus. O my Lord Jesus. And the caption by Isis, underneath that stated, These insisted to remain in unbelief. What do they mean? Well, in other words, they were given the option to convert to Islam or die. And every one of them refused to convert. So they adhered to Christ even unto death. Do you know that this is prophesied in Scripture? The Apostle John in Vision writes I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image or had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 20 and verse 4. But this horrific event occurred while the world sits by and does absolutely nothing. Not just the U.S., but the world. It is Nazi Germany and the Holocaust all over again. But what was Abraham's rationale for becoming involved in the rescue of Lot, apart from him being a nephew? Peter tells us. God, he says he, he, God rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them, the Sodomites, day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. 2 Peter 2, verse 7 and 8. So three times in this text, Peter calls Lot a righteous man. And although this refers to God rescuing Lot when the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire from heaven, the righteous character of Lot also applies to Abraham's rescue just a few months or so before the destruction of Sodom. He didn't just put on his righteousness when he lived in Sodom. He was righteous before he went there. And he was righteous while he was living there. He was righteous when these kings of the plain came in and captured him and hauled him off along with all of his goods. So Lot was more than a member of Abram's family. He was a member of God's family. and A victim of unwarranted violence. Of, a resident of Sodom, yes. Living in the wrong place at the wrong time, that's very true. But nonetheless, a citizen of God's household. And what is more, he must be considered an innocent of any crime against the Syrian state, which comprised the conquering federation of four kings. Lot, like the beheaded Coptic Christians, had done nothing Nothing against the Syrian invaders. This is the basis for <coughs> excuse me, a just war. A just war for rising militarily to confront and defeat those who capture women and innocent children for the purpose of rape and humiliation and training, as in the case of children, to hate. Train them to hate. Train them to become part of a warrior culture bent on terror and murder and mayhem. And maybe you have seen uh, the pictures on the internet of those children that have been kidnapped. They're dressed in brown uniforms and little army soldiers. It is a repeat of the Hitler Youth Corps all over again. Capture the kids and indoctrinate them in hate and murder. We observe that the enemy made no distinction for Lot being a righteous man. They afforded him no clemency, no respect for his good character, no leniency for being a person of principle absent of malice and tyranny. They cut him no slack in any of this. He was treated with the same disregard as the vile sodomites. He was living among them, so he must be, he must be one of them. That's the way they reason. None of the citizens spoke up for him either. Why would they? (laughs) Think about this. They cared nothing for Lot's righteousness, his character. So poorly viewed was Lot as a hypocrite. But Lot was viewed by God as a genuinely righteous man nonetheless, though he smelled of hypocrisy, and it was not to Abraham to play judge and jury in regard to Lot. Abraham's course was clear. Lot, his brother in the faith, was in danger, so if Abraham could do anything at all to rescue him, he must try. And We have proof of Abraham's just cause for becoming a warrior to rescue Lot in the benediction Melchizedek in our text, who as priest of God Most High, verse 18, blessed Abraham, verse 19, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hands. There is, brethren, no higher indication that what Abraham did as a warrior was approved by God but not only approved, but enabled by God, by God's own personal involvement and intervention. This is why Abram, with but a small force of servant soldiers, was able to defeat the armies of a four-king federation. Well, he won. He beat them. And the second point, then, is what do you do now that you've won, dividing the spoils of war. To the victors belong the spoils. That has long been the battle cry. It is a truism of every battle victory. After World War I, the Treaty of Versailles required, I'm reading from uh, Wikipedia, sci- encyclopedia, Germany, to accept the, uh, Germany must accept the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage, that's in the Versailles Treaty, during the war. And the other members of the Central Powers signed treaties containing similar wording. This article, Article 231 of the Versailles Treaty, later became known as the War Guilt Clause. The War Guilt Clause. The treaty forced Germany to disarm, to make substantial territorial concessions, and to pay repartitions to certain countries. You got to pay up because you are responsible for this. Same after World War II, the Paris Peace Treaty. They were signed on the February 10th, 1947 at the outcome of the Paris Peace Conference, which was held on the 29th of July through October 15th of 1946. The victorious wartime allied powers, principally the United States, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and France, negotiated the details of peace treaties with Italy, Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Finland following the end of World War II in 1945. The settlement elaborated in the peace treaties included payment of war reparations, commitment to minority rights, and territorial adjustments, including the end of the Italian colonial empire in Africa, Greece, and Albania, as well as the border changes that were made in the country of Germany. Now, what all this means is the rationale behind these reparations is this. You caused all this trouble. You are responsible for huge losses of life and property, and so now you have to pay Now when we come to this text, Genesis 14, it's a little different in Abraham's case with the four king federation that he defeated. Because in the defeat, look at verse 16, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions, which as you know were sizable, together with the women and the other people. So there's no treaty involved. The four-king federation had been soundly defeated. He had put, pushed all the way back to Hobah, north of Damascus, verse 15. Damascus being the capital of Syria. He had recovered all the prisoners, all their possessions, which he now returned to Sodom. So, verse 21 says, The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Give me the people, keep the goods for yourself. King Bera of Sodom, verse 2, that's his name, was simply following the proper protocol of the day for reparations. He had. He and the king of, of Gomorrah had fled when the battle became hot and heavy in the valley of Sidim, verse 10, and thus they escaped from being conquered, captured. So Abraham did not have to rescue them, and they were not involved in the recovery effort of Abram. But King Barrow was willing to pay Abram for his well-fought fight and victory. It's only fair, it's only right that he do so. So he's following that protocol. Give me the people, and you keep all the goods that you have captured. But observe Abram's response to King Barah's offer, verse 22 and following. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, here's his rationale, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what all my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Verse 22 through 24. This is a man whose cause is just, whose motives were pure, whose analysis of the victory takes no credit For himself, verse 22, I have raised my hand to the Lord God, most high creator of heaven and earth. That's a verbatim quote from Melchizedek the priest, verse 19, which means that in Abram's own eyes, he knows full well that it was God most high, verse 20, who delivered the Syrian federation of kings into his hands. So he's not about to take payment for something he didn't do in his own strength. There's yet another issue here. If he did take reparations from King Bera of Sodom, it wouldn't be long before Bera would be boasting that those payments are what made Abraham rich and powerful, verse 23. Thus the attention would be turned away from God's grace to Abram for the victory and credited instead to the alleged generosity of this pagan king. The king of Sodom would get the glory that belonged to God alone. And Abraham is making it clear. There is no partnership here between Abram and Barah. Barah has to know this. The warning of the Apostle Paul, centuries later, is veritable truth even in this situation? Let me read it for you from 2 Corinthians 6. Paul writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial's a, a name for Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them. Be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. 2 Corinthians six, fourteen through 17 Abram was not about to partner with King Bera for fear that too much credit would accrue to the king of Sodom and the Lord God Most High would be relegated to a lesser and insignificant role. Abraham had not gone to war for what he could get out of it. His motives were pure and righteous. It's like the hymn writer Francis Habergale who writes, and this hymn is in our hymn book, Not for weight of glory nor for crown and palm Enter we, the army, and raise the warrior psalm But for love that claimeth lives for whom he died He whom Jesus saveth marches at his side By thy love constraining, by thy grace divine We are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. That's why he went. That's why he fought. That's what makes the war just. And that's the next point in your outline. Abraham's just fight or righteous fight. If the reason for Abram to take up arms and pursue the federation of Syrian kings was simply simply his natural affection for Lot. Does that justify or make just his going to war? Surely not, for to do so would mean little more than a man taking the law into his own hands because his relative had been unfairly treated by a neighbor. We have laws for such occasions. We have policemen, we have judges, we have courts, assuming that such are not themselves abusing their office and their power. There's no way we can paint this move by Abraham as a personal vendetta. There's another answer. In chapter 13, we learn that Lot began his downward spiral through the, his greedy choice of the entire Jordan Valley for his homestead, even though not a plot of that land was ever given to him. It was on that occasion that God encouraged Abraham, chapter 13, verse 14 and following. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had departed from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your, offering like the, your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust... Then your offspring would be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Genesis 13, 14 through 17. Brethren, it is this promise of God that God gave to Abraham. It's this promise that gave Abraham the right to fight for what was his by God's grant. His taping up of arms is a move of faith. And if we think there is no way Abraham can be successful against a federation of four kings and their armies, Abraham's courage was equally a matter of faith. I know I'm small. I know I have 318 men and all my allies might add a few extra hundred there. But against four kings and their armies, he knows He knows. But did he not say, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, verse 22. He never thought, he never thought of his servant militia as strong enough to win the war. By faith he looked to God to win the war through his puny forces. 318 plus against four Syrian armies. No contest. But Abraham was lord of the land by divine fiat. He must now act as the prince that he was, even though he had but only 318 militia to aid his cause. God would intervene Believed Abraham. God must intervene. Believed Abraham. And if he doesn't intervene, he himself, God himself, will be disgraced. And when God granted the victory, Abraham dare not in good conscience gloat over his achievement, nor avail himself of the spoils of war. Now he must lay down his arms And he must walk back into his life of shepherding sheep and raising cattle. He's not a professional soldier. God has been his savior, and this he knows right well. Robert S. Candlish, a Scottish minister, gives this excellent application of Abraham's actions, quoting, This history, writes Candlish, is exemplary in a high degree the brotherly kindness of the patriarch, his disinterestedness, his heavenly mindedness are exhibited in this transaction for a pattern to us. Whatever pattern we have, let it be used for our brother's deliverance, for doing good to all, but especially to such who are of the household of faith. Let all suspicion of covetousness or self selfish ends be carefully excluded in all of our undertakings. And in the height of earthly triumph, let it be seen that we can forego the tempting prize and live still as strangers and pilgrims seeking a better, that is, a heavenly country. End quote. That was Abraham. Went out, did what he had to do, came back home, rejected the spoils of war, and went back to his life as a citizen. Now what then are some lessons for our time? Number one, because God is the grantor of all blessings received, our thanksgiving demands a sacrificial response. Our thanksgiving. Let me ask some questions. Who heard about the capture of righteous Lot from Sodom? Well, Abram, by way of an escapee of the battle, verse 13, right? Who mustered an army of militia to rescue Lot? Again, Abram, verse 14. Who devised a workable, prudent military strategy to issue a sounding defeat to the four king federation? And rescue law. Again, Abraham, verse 15. Who received all the goods belonging to the cities of the plain, along with the women and the other people, and returned all of these to their homeland. Again, Abraham, verse 16. It is Abram, Abram, Abram who did it all. He put his own life on the line. He put the lives of his servants in jeopardy. He supported the troops at his own expense. He refused to take any compensation for his own payout. Abraham did it all. It was dangerous. It was laborious. It was demanding. It was time-consuming work. And it took him away from his homestead. Why then do we read, as we do read in verse 20, Then Abraham gave him Melchizedek the priest? of God Most High, then Abraham gave him a tenth, a tithe of everything. How come, I'm being a little crass here, how come God gets a percentage of the spoils when Abraham did all the work? That's the way the natural heart thinks. We've already learned that God blessed Abraham with the victory, but couldn't Abraham just say, well, thank you, Lord, and let it go at that? There's a lot going on here, not the least of which is a test of Abraham's acknowledgement that it was God's intervention that won the battle. That's easy to say. You can say, well, God was with me. I'm confident, yes I am, that Abraham expressed a vocal response of thanks to God for the victory. We don't have it recorded, but I I believe that that occurred. But there's subtlety here that must not be overlooked. To Bera, king of Sodom, Abraham was careful to make it clear that he had no intention of allowing this pagan king to think that his gift of the spoils of war made Abram rich, so he refused. He refused. But to drive the point home, Abraham demonstrated before King Bera and all the others present there that Abram owed God a gift of gratitude for his divine intervention. It was not Barah who deserved thanks for his proposed generosity. It was God who had delivered, who had handed over these enemies into Abraham's hands. Verse 29. Now you know, you and I are no different. We may be the one who did the work, we may be the one who sweat the sweat, who expended the energy, who toiled in the task, but it is as Paul told the Corinthian church. What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Answer only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants, the man who waters, have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 10. You know, brethren, our giving to the church is not, it is not us Bribing God to intervene in our lives as needed. Rather, it is our thanksgiving in a practical way, our acknowledgement, if you please, of His interventions without which we would be impotent and impoverished. It's because God grants to us His gifts that we express our thanks in tangible ways. That's a tremendous lesson to learn, and Abraham teaches us that. It's one thing to say, oh, no, no, King Bera, I don't want anything you have. I don't want you to say that you made me rich. Well, that's wonderful as far as it goes, but he goes the extra step. Not only are you not responsible for making me rich, but I'm going to give my tithe of all that I have to the Lord to show that it is he that is the grantor of grace in my life. Second lesson. The world, the world now, think about this, always benefits from Christians who live out their faith in the world. Let me say it again. The world always benefits from Christians who live out their faith. When Abram's militia ran down the armies of the pagan Confederation, he rescued Lot out of their hands along with all of his possessions. But was that was not at all. Look at verse 16. It tells us that along with Lot, all the goods were recovered together with the women and the other people. And I ask, what other people? Verse 11. The city dwellers of Sodom and Gomorrah along with their food and all of their possessions. Upon Abram's victory, King Barah prop Propose, give me the people, and you keep the goods for yourself. It's more than just Lot here. The lesson here is that Christians, wherever they live, are a blessing of God to the general population. Even if there be a bit of hypocrisy in their lives, and there is, as here in the case of Lot, God's love for his people is so tenacious that he will move heaven and earth to preserve them. And in so doing, there is a residual effect on the people with whom the Christian community rubs shoulders. Abraham did not just, praise be to God, he did not just subdue the Syrian armies, rescue Lot, and then leave all the other people as captives while he returned to Palestine with his nephew. No, he freed Lot, but God also enabled him to free all the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. They benefited because Lot, the righteous man, was among them. And you know, this is always, always the case. Jesus taught his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Matthew 5, verse 13. Salt makes food taste good. We know that. It adds flavor to an otherwise bland diet. But salt is also used as a preservative. Still is. Great quantities in the third world. Why? Because it inhibits the deterioration of meat, for example, and keeps it from becoming rancid. God's people have, can I say it this way, God's people have this preservative effect upon a sinful world. Later, we will study the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by the death angels sent by God. But for now, consider that Lot and his family kind of dragged their feet in leaving Sodom. They were hesitant to leave house and goods. And in the case of his daughters, their rebellious husbands, they didn't want to leave these people behind. But, I mean, the sun was rising. The day was dawning. The day of judgment had come. Lot didn't think that he could make it into the hills before the rain of fire began, so he proposed going to the small town of Zor. It's in our text, verse 2. One of the plain states, cities. Listen to the angel's response. He said to him, he's talking to Lot, he said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town that you speak of. But flee there quickly, notice, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town is called Zor, meaning insignificant. That was that was Lot's little plea. Can I go to the little town of Zor? Do I have to run up into the mountains? I'm never going to make it to the mountains before the judgment comes. So the angel grants Lot this reprieve, but he says to him, get moving and move quickly and get out of here because I cannot do anything until you're gone. What is this? This is the truth that Lot's presence in Sodom, preserved the city from destruction. Only when he was gone are we told, verse 24 of chapter 19, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Let me put it this way. When the Christians are gone, There's no reason for God to withhold judgment. Think about that. The Islamic terrorists, the jihadists fighting their holy war, ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, the Muslim Brotherhood, Boko Haram in Africa, and dozens more. You can go on the internet and see there are dozens and dozens of these facets. They're all ignorant of this truth. That every beheading, every act of genocide against Christians removes society's preservative from judgment and opens the windows of heaven one more notch for God's judgment to be poured out upon themselves. When the salt of the earth no longer is present or is, in the case of apostasy, has lost its pungency. God is free to deal with the unrighteous as their sins deserve. It's a tremendous truth. So long as you're here and you're vital in your faith, you preserve the nation. May I say that what is true on a national scope is equally true On an individual basis. In mixed marriages. By which I mean a believer married to an unbeliever. Paul tells us. The unbelieving husband has been sanctified. Through his wife. The believer. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified. Through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is. They are holy. How do you know wife. Whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? First Corinthians 7, 14 and following. So here is one reason to maintain the relationship. Is, is even in a mixed marriage. There are other circumstances circumstances which may permit divorce. They're not listed here. But here again, certainly on a much smaller scale, the believer. Preserves the unbeliever. This, however, is not eternal. It's not eternal. We're not talking about salvation in the eternal sense. Husbands die, wives die, and personal sin is not eradicated because you are married to a believer. So as the sin continues, Paul says, but because of your stubbornness, because of your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself. It's like a bank account. You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment, there you are again, a righteous war, a righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2 verse 5. May I say that the only eradication of judgment that is permanent, and that is eternal, (coughs) is repentance of sin and trusting faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only eternal salvation. Romans 8, verse 1, words it this way, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You must have a personal surrender encounter with Jesus Christ to be spared. You cannot ride to glory on the coattails, on the coattails of a relative or a spouse that is a believer. So my charge to you is today if you hear God's call, if you hear his call, his conviction. Do not continue to harden your heart through unbelief. The day will come and the righteous will be gone. Lot won't be in Sodom. And the fireballs of heaven will fall. The Christians won't be in America or in Syria or the Middle East or in other parts of the world like Africa. And the fire of God's wrath will fall. Then how will it be for you our Lord we thank you and praise you for your truth how powerful it is and it's it's unnerving admittedly so we know probably some in our own family we know people who well they like to rub shoulders with us they think uh, that by being with Christians and maybe praying with them or by doing some Christian things like uh, listening to a sermon or reading a passage of the scripture that uh, that makes them well in their soul with you but it's not so. There must be repentance of our sins which means a turning away from it and if we turn away from it we confess it and we acknowledge that it is a violation of God's law and to that must be added faith And trust in the Lord Jesus Christ not in ourselves trying to work our way to heaven not with any super silly idea that our good works are such that will please God no there's only one good works that please God and that's the work of Jesus Christ his beloved son Lord let us see that today let us trust in him thank you for your word thank you Lord for the preservative effect that your people have. May we ever have that. May our lives be so righteous and holy in our deportment that the world will see our good works and praise God as a result. But for the belligerent and the defiant, for those that hate you and hate us, Lord, even so, come, Lord Jesus, in this turmoil that we see across the world, where your people are being persecuted and slaughtered for their testimony. Grant them faith. Grant them strength. Preserve our own faith and strength, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.